want you to see that when we look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and this passage we're going to look at in a second, I want you to see that they apply to our hearts deeply. This is not a superficial passage that just barely scratches into our lives. This is a passage that hits home, I think, for all of us and our impulse for revenge and for justice as we see it. And as Jesus walks through this fifth example of his greater righteousness, he's going to expose the way that our hearts are full of a self-oriented justice and impulse for revenge. He's going to expose it. And he's going to expose it. He's going to just lay us out like he's been doing all through the Sermon on the Mount. Does anybody else here feel as convicted as I do? Uh, this, this sermon series has been really, really deeply convicting for me. And Jesus, I think, is going to go at it again the same way. He's going to lay our hearts bare and show what's really going on inside. And he's going to do it for this incredible, purposeful reason. He's going to do it to show us that we need him, to invite us to come to him, to be made whole, to have his righteousness take root in our hearts so that that vengeance is gone and his love and his mercy and his grace remain. So here's our outline. We're going to look at who we are. We're going to look at what Jesus says is required. And we're going to look at how Jesus deals with our hearts. So who we are, what is required, and how Jesus deals finally with our hearts. So look with me at our first point, who we are, and Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, as he starts us off. And he says this, he says, you have, heard it, it, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And again, as Jesus says this and uses that familiar phrase, he's used a few times now, you have heard it said, he's referring to something uh, that was a familiar point of reference for his audience. He's referring to the Jewish law, those, those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written by Moses, and in our Bibles today, but in their Bibles certainly then as well. And in that law, this gracious revelation of God uh, into our darkness and sin as humankind, into that law, uh, there were three places that used the same phrase that Jesus just spoke to us. Three places that say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. One's in Exodus 20, uh, one, sorry, Exodus 20, verse 22 to 25. One's Leviticus 24, verses 19 to 20. And one's Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, if you're taking notes. But I want to look at one of these texts. We don't have time to look at all of them, but I think we need to stop now and just kind of pause and consider what is it that Jesus is saying? What's he referencing? Let's look at it in context and consider what was said. So turn with me, if you would, look at Leviticus 24, 19 to 20 to see what Jesus is referring to when he says, you have heard it says an eye for an eye. Here's just one example of those three examples in the law. And in the law we read, if anyone injures his neighbor, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is a really familiar law for the people of Jesus' day. They, they got this, they embraced it, they realized it. But let's be honest, it sounds pretty strange to us. It sounds kind of crazy. In fact, maybe it sounds a little bit brutal. I mean, just imagine you're out there, you get in a little scrap with your neighbor and you sit him down and say, look, buddy, you poked my eye. It's, it's damaged. I'm not going to be able to see out of it. So let me just call the cops. We're going to call the policeman. And the judge is going to come by. And I'm going to go sharpen up my knife. And, and we're going to make this right. And we're going to make it right. Or, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, you're working together on a project. And you, you swing the hammer and someone's arm or finger gets broken. Like, all right, we'll just stop right there. Let's go call the guy, you know, the finger-breaking guy. And he'll come and he'll make this right. It sounds kind of brutal and strange to us, doesn't it? Is that how it sounds? Or is it you guys like, no, I embrace this. this. This sounds really good. I think it sounds strange to us. It sounds a little odd to us. 
And I think some people even hear texts like this one, they say something like this. They say, wow, what a brutal God in the Old Testament. What a brutal and vindictive God who would give a law like that to his people. That's awful. I'm so glad that I love Jesus, the gracious God, the loving God, who's not like that Old Testament God. I think there's a way that some people kind of put this false dichotomy between what they see in a passage like this one and what they see in the New Testament and the Jesus that they're familiar with. But we need to hear this morning that that's completely wrong. That's a wrong way to read this text. You see, this passage, it's familiar to them, this Old Testament passage. It's not a law of brutality at all, actually. It's a law that was given to stop our human sin and our human propensity for vengeance, for revenge. And the thing is, vengeance in human society is a massive, massive problem. Let me try to kind of catch you up to speed on why it's such a big problem. I have one friend um, that comes to mind when I, when I think about vengeance and revenge, uh, not because he's vindictive and trying to get back at me, um, but because of a story that he once told me. He lived in the, the Republic of Macedonia for a number of years. And uh, he used to tell me when we did talk about his life there in the Republic of Macedonia, about the long, long, long social memories of those people. Uh, a social memory that we don't really have in Canada because I think our history, we're mostly immigrants and original uh, First Nations peoples. Um, but we don't have this like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history. But these people that my friend was amongst, they had these long memories and he told me about the way that these tensions between especially the Albanians and the Serbians was deep. This is a deep, deep tension. And it wasn't a, a tension that went back 10 years or, or 20. These were tensions that people remembered. These were hurts that people cherished. These were revenges and hatreds that people just kind of kept going in the back of their hearts for five centuries and more. Remembering, I remember what your people did to my people 500 years ago. And then like we saw in the 90s, when the opportunity comes, occasionally those deep, bitter hatreds, they spill over into unrestrained conflicts. And lots of people die. Lots and lots of people die when that happens. But let's be honest, it's not just the Balkans where we see revenge unleashed in human societies, but it's all over the place in human society and all over the place in history. We look at Rwanda, we see it happening. We saw it happen. Sudan, the Crusades, terrorism, Many global conflicts and wars, counterterrorism. We see it all over the place as humans have this propensity to react to one another in vengeance and hostility that's so destructive. But it's not just history. In a funny way, Hollywood actually taps into our desire for vengeance too and shows what's going on in our hearts. Isn't that true? How many, like, if you did a tally, what percentage do you think of Hollywood movies would be revenge films? It would be pretty high, I think. And not just like Quentin Tarantino and his genius in, in, in revenge films, but, uh, you know, the Marvel Universe as well. You know, and you look at The Punisher, you could look at other things, or I think John Wick 3 just came out. Um, you know, like there's all these movies that are just, like, the, the whole plot is, is revenge. It's, it's delighting and kind of having a, a thirst for vengeance satisfied. But that's a problem. This vengeance that's in the human heart is a huge problem. So hear this. It's a huge problem for this reason. I think... I submit to you that there is nothing in all of human history that has ruined more lives, that has destroyed more cities, and that has hurt more people than human beings living into their impulse for revenge. I think there's nothing that's done more damage to human flourishing than that in this world. The renowned theologian Miroslav Volf, he puts that nice point on it when he says this. 
He says, revenge doesn't say an eye for an eye. It says, you take my eye and I'll blow your brains out. It doesn't say an insult for an insult. It says, you cross me once, you cross me twice, and I'll destroy your character and your career. Revenge abandons the principle of measure for measure. Measure for measure, as we see in this verse. You see, the God of the Bible, out of his love, and out of his mercy to a sinful people that had a fracture of sin running through every human heart, he speaks these words. He says, an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye, because he knew the vengeance in the human heart that spills over, not in measure for measure, but in abundance. You cross me and your village must go. And this vengeance is in you, and it's in me. It's our human condition. We want justice, but we want it on our terms, and we strike out to get it. We've seen this a lot. I think we see this in the day-to-day drama of our lives. Um, I'm sure some of you know, I know people like this. It's awful. It's sad. You see someone, maybe a marriage that, that splits up, and you just see the spouses on either side of that conflict. And oftentimes, it's not an amenable breakup. And it's not justice that's sought, but it's one spouse that is thinking, how can I destroy and ruin the life of the other spouse? And they bring their own home down on their own heads, and they don't care because they're vengeful. They want the destruction. And it's into this Genesis 3 world, this world of sin, where things are not as they should be, where sin reigns our hearts, in our hearts, that God gave his good and gracious law and said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because he desires justice and not vengeance. And yet, and yet, Jesus doesn't just teach us about how to carefully weigh the justice we meet out to others, does he? He doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, okay, here's, here's a few more instructions about how to carefully get back in exactly the appropriate way. He doesn't say that. You see, Jesus, when he starts to teach us here, he says, you've heard it said, but I said to you, he starts to teach us something different because he wants to deal with a deeper problem than just having a measured justice on one side and the other. Because he knows that in a world that's full of sin, in a world that has sin in each of our hearts, that our desire even for equitable justice can be perverted. That even an eye for an eye can become, hey, you took my eye, you better give me yours. You better respond. You better have justice served. You better feel what I felt. I want justice. And Jesus knows that that is a perversion of the good and gracious law and love of God who created us, who wants us to not live in vengeance, but to live in love and compassion and mercy towards one another. So look at our second point and what Jesus says is required. Not just an eye for an eye, but more. Jesus begins his counterpoint with a summarizing statement in Matthew 5, verse 39. He says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Don't strike out at the one who's done you wrong at all. Let that land on you. That's crazy. Is that crazy? Do you feel that? Do you feel that impulse? You can't be serious, Jesus. Don't resist the one who who is evil? Jesus, do you literally want me to be a doormat, to be walked over in this world by any evil person that desires to have their way with me? Is that what you want, Jesus? Is that what you're calling me to? It's provocative in our own hearts. I think we feel that when we honestly just look at this text and let it weigh on our hearts. 
But thankfully, no. Jesus isn't after an a, a I-dotted and a T-crossed literal interpretation that just lets your life be a doormat. That's not what he's looking for here. So praise God for that. Uh, get that out of your mind. That's not what he's after. But he is being pro- provocative for a reason. When he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's speaking in striking tones and extreme imagery to expose the deep-seated problem of revenge in our hearts. He's showing us that your impulse and my impulse is not for mercy and compassion in the hard places. It's for revenge. He's showing us that in these examples. Another way of saying it is this. His examples that he's going to get into in his teaching here, they're kind of like a blast furnace. And they're a blast furnace that, that burn away all the fluff in our lives and they expose what's really there deep down in our hearts at the most basic level. You see, Jesus could have used a lot of easier examples, couldn't he? He could have said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I said to you, when your neighbor has run out of milk and when they need sugar and they knock on your door, you should give it to them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, when somebody is hurting on the sidewalk, you should go over and help them. He could have said that stuff. He could have said it. But the problem with saying those things is that they're not that hard. They're relatively easy. They're occasionally inconvenient, but that's about it. And easy examples, they wouldn't do the job. They wouldn't show us what's going on in our hearts because they're not hard enough. They're not hard enough. For that, to see what's really happening in our hearts, Jesus needs to confront us with the most difficult situations. He needs to show us those places when all the margin is gone, when the sleepless nights are endless, and then the one who has wronged us comes before us, and we're called to live in forgiveness and love and mercy and compassion in those places. That's why he uses these examples, to show us what's really going on in our hearts. So let's look at what Jesus says. What does it look like then to live in this way, to not live out of an impulse for twisted and vengeful justice, but to live instead in love and mercy? He gives us four examples. Let's look. First, Matthew five thirty nine. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I mean, just imagine that. In this room, someone comes up to you, boom. And like, no, 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 stop. I know you want to hit them. Stay still a moment. Just quiet down. Put your hands by your side. Turn the other cheek. Okay, now you're good. Like, like that, it gets us. It's like, no. That's not, how we, that's not how we do it. Someone hits me and I hit them back harder. That's how this works. Come on, Jesus. And for the ancient Jew, actually, there's, there's even more to this passage than, than it lands on us, I think, because they lived in an honor and shame culture. And this had this added layer of meaning that it wasn't just painful to be slapped, it was also demeaning. It was a way of being publicly violated. Publicly violated. And Jesus was saying, let your honor go. Turn your other cheek. Let it happen. Respond not in vengeance, even in that place that is calling for every ounce of justice from your heart. Let that go. Respond in mercy and compassion instead. His words are so provocative. Second, he says in 5 verse 40, this is a second example. He says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And again, this is a sensitive point in Jewish culture. Because according to Jewish law, when you were in court and you were found to be in debt to someone, they could sue you and they could take your inner garment. That was allowed. That was permitted. But it was not permitted for them to take your outer garment. Because in a world where you had to travel between villages and occasionally spend the night on the way, your outer garment was your sleeping bag. And it's like, this is, this is my protection from the elements. 
This is the valuable piece. I don't really care about the inner piece nearly as much. The outer piece is this valuable and precious Arcturex sleeping bag that, that I've invested a lot of money in, okay? And I can't just give it up on a whim. And Jesus says, no, give that up too. Give that up too. He offends their sensibilities. If someone takes your inner garment, give them the sleeping bag as well. Some people have actually taken this literally. There's a, a certain group of Mennonites that have... Uh, we love Mennonites. We are Mennonites, Mennonite brethren here at Christ City Church. But there's a group of us, there's a group of us that have been a bit more literal than others. And they've taken this literally and they've kind of made a point of stripping naked when asked for a, a garment or at least teaching that that's what should happen. I, I, I doubt they ever do it, but that's kind of the I dotted and T crossed example. But that would be to miss the point because Jesus, again, he's not aiming at an exactly and strictly literal interpretation. He's doing something different. He's, he's prodding at all the sensitive issues prodding at our hearts to show what's really there and what our response is in the hard places in the way that we don't operate in our lives primarily on this plane, the plane of the love of God flowing through us to others, his mercy and his grace rich and deep in us. We operate primarily out of this plane down here. Justice on my terms. Let me have it my way. I want this made right. But he goes on and he gives another example. The third one in verse 41, he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And in case there's any confusion, this is not that verse about like, and you're at the restaurant, just make sure you do a little bit of cleanup at the table. Just go the extra mile. It's not the verse about, hey, when you go camping and you go to the cabin, uh, you know, just, just go the extra mile and leave it better than you found it. That's not the extra mile passage that Jesus is talking about. That's where it comes from. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. In this verse, Jesus is talking about the right of a Roman soldier who is the oppressor and the occupier of Jewish Palestine. He's talking about their right to press into service any passerby. Hey, Joe, I see you working in the field. Uh, you Jewish man that I'm oppressing. Um, would you just stop a moment and carry my big backpack? I'm a bit tired. And they had a legal right to demand that. You know, you can carry it for one mile legally, but after that, I'll just find Sarah. That's okay. We'll get her to carry it, you know, the next mile. And go from one person to the next and to the next. And they had a legal right to do one mile, but no more. And for a Jew, can you imagine that? You are oppressed. You are impoverished. You feel deeply violated by this people that are over you. And you are called to carry their burdens. There's a law that made you carry their burdens. And Jesus says, not just one mile, two. Not just one, two. Don't just respond by fulfilling your obligation. Respond with mercy and with grace. And even with love to your oppressor. Again, Jesus is exposing a heart of revenge. Like, how could I do that to that person? There's no way, Jesus. You've got to be kidding. He's exposing the impulse for revenge, for justice in our terms, versus the love that God desires to flow through our hearts to others. And then last, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Relevant words, I think, for us as much as them. No? Begging, I think, is an ex excellent example in our own culture of our impulse to be concerned first with justice rather than mercy and love. I'll tell you what I do. When I'm begged from in this city, oftentimes my first impulse is, yeah, but what are they going to do with my generosity? 
yeah, but, but if, I, if, I were to give, if I were to give money, they'd abuse it. They'd abuse my generosity. If I were to help them in this way, maybe they would take advantage of it. Maybe in this situation right now, maybe they're manipulating me. They probably are. I mean, that's what's going on, right? And my impulse is first and foremost, I think like yours, is to think about the wheels of justice and whether this is right and how I'm controlling those wheels of justice rather than how am I loving somebody? How am I caring for this person? Is my impulse first to love, to show compassion and mercy and kindness, or is it for something else? You see, in all these examples, he's teaching us about the way that the thing going on in our hearts is not right. He's showing us, Jesus is showing us, we don't fundamentally care about loving those who beg and borrow from us, but about how they might abuse our generosity and how our impulse is usually fundamentally to protect ourselves. And in each of these examples of not resisting the one who is evil, Jesus, he just aims again and again directly at our hearts, shooting his arrows deep into us. Again, not to be totally literal. He's not saying go empty your wallets to every homeless person who asks you for your wallet. He's not saying go find every punk on the street and ask them to punch you. He's not saying, hey, go find an oppressor and show them the ways that they can take advantage of you in your situation. He's not saying any of that. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not doing that. But he is asking this. He's saying to us, you need to hear this, brothers and sisters. He's saying this, let his words land on you. Is your heart fundamentally at root operating out of mercy and compassion and loved when wronged or inconvenienced? Or something else? Or is it operating out of mercy and grace towards your neighbor? Is your heart so in line with the love and the compassion and mercy of a great God that it just naturally spills out of you towards others in every situation? Jesus shows he cares not just for justice. And isn't he the one who's just, like, there's no question of justice with Jesus. He's a rider on the white horse who will pay to each one what they have done at the end of time. There is going to be justice with Jesus, but he's not just concerned about justice. He's concerned with us. He's concerned with human beings and whether we live as we were created to live. And this relationship with God in love that flows through us and loves others. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Is that happening in our hearts? And in this sermon, he exposes our sin. He exposes it. He lays us bare for a purpose so that we would see our need and we'd come to him. We say, Jesus, can you deal with me? And he promises, yes, I will. Let's look at our third point, how Jesus deals with our hearts. Again, let's be honest. When we look at our heart and we hear these passages, we know that we're not where we should be. When, we were, when we're wronged in the big areas, when we're violated or when we're robbed or we're stolen from, and we respond in a terrible way for sure. But what about in the small areas that we've talked about already? I'll throw some others at you. What about when your roommate doesn't clean up after themselves? And the counter's dirty, right? You get up and you look at like, what happened last night? And why is it not dealt with? Well, what about when someone breaks your car window? You come back, you're just gone for 15 minutes and you show up like, my, oh, my car smashed, my bag's gone. What about when your kids don't listen to you like you've asked them to? Or what about when the car doesn't stop for you at the crosswalk and I've been clearly standing here with my arm out? Like, come on, didn't you see me? You could have killed me. 
I've never responded that way. <laughs> oh man, my heart is so wicked. This is, this is hard for me. Our hearts betray us, don't they? We're not righteous. We're wicked and we're vindictive and we're vengeful. That's what we are. But brothers and sisters, it is that impulse for revenge and vindictiveness within you, that hatred, that bitterness that gets stirred up so easily in you, that's the same thing that's wrong with this world. It's that. It's that that is the fuel to the fire that causes cities, cities to be burned to the ground. That overflows in murder and strife and families that can't talk to one another anymore because the, the wounds are deep and the bitterness and the anger is deep. It's that. It's that revenge in our hearts. But here's the good news. Jesus can change us. Jesus can change us. He can work a greater righteousness into us at that level. I think Jesus, I think in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole time he's saying these incredible things. But I think he's saying them with his arms wide open and with a smile. He's saying, this is my greater righteousness. But come, come, let me work on you. Let me start to deal with what's inside of you. I can do it. I can fulfill the law. That's why I've come. I can work it in you. I can fill you with my spirit and my life so that my own love and my own life will be at work inside of you in these difficult situations. So that I will take up residence in you and my life will fill more and more of your life. So you respond as I do. So you respond as I did when I was on earth. And brothers and sisters, that's a game changer. Because how did Jesus respond when he was on earth? Jesus did not resist the one who is evil. Jesus always gave himself in mercy and love, even when it harmed him personally. Jesus, just get this, Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He let it happen. When the court, the kangaroo court, determined to kill Jesus, he was struck by his face, on his face, by these puny men, the God of the universe being struck by these little creatures spitting at him putting a crown of thorns on his head and mocking his divinity, mocking that he is a king, that he's the ruler of the kings on the earth. He didn't strike back. When Jesus was being crucified, Jesus allowed his garments to be taken, all of them. And the soldiers passed the time gambling away Jesus' last earthly possessions. Jesus allowed sinful men this is unbelievable. Jesus, the God of the universe in human flesh, he allowed sinful human creatures to nail his wrist to a wooden beam that he had created. To raise him up on the cross and to drop him into a hole so it would stand upright. The creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, he allowed himself to be exposed violated, naked, bleeding for all to see between two criminals. And while he was dying, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing. 
And through it all, Jesus did not resist the one who is evil. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So Jesus opened not his mouth. To be clear, it wasn't as if Jesus didn't have a choice. Let's be real clear about that. This is God incarnate in human form on earth. Jesus had all authority and power. He could have crushed his enemies. He had every right to. It was illegal for him to do it. He's the creator of the universe. He could have ended it right there. But he didn't. And while this was all going down and his disciples said, Jesus, what's going on? How come you're not fighting back? He says to them, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Don't you realize I'm letting this happen? That the son of man lays down his life of his own accord and he takes it back up again. Why did Jesus do this? What was going on in his heart that needs to start working in hours to make us like him? What compelled him? Well, I can think of three reasons I want to share with you. One, because this world is so polluted with sin and hate and death, Jesus came not to condemn us and to exact vengeance, but to redeem this world. To rescue us. To save us. Because of his great love for us. Look at John 3, verses 16 to 17. The love of God compelled Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And to be clear, I think sometimes we look at this text and we think how, how cruel of God to send Jesus to make him do this. Jesus is fully God, brothers and sisters. He's in on the plan. This is his plan. He's being sent in concert with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He comes into this world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To be saved through him because of his love for us. He laid down his right because of his love for us. To save us. Second, he laid down his right to extract justice from his enemies and to die for us for this reason. Because there is no question of justice in his mind. He trusted a God who is just. He knew that the arc of history bends perfectly and unchangeably towards the justice of an eternal God. And he trusted it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 to 24 say this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted the Father. And he laid down his own need for justice in the moment. Third, Jesus did all of this for this beautiful, beautiful purpose. He did it to destroy the vengeance of, and the hatred and the enmity that's in my heart and that's in your heart. To put an end to it and to put in its place peace and love. Look at these two verses with me. 1 John four nineteen. so short, so simple, and so profound. We love because he first loved us. Jesus, who gave himself in love to death, to die, did so that we would be saved, that we could be raised with him in new life so that his life and love could become our life and love. And we, brothers and sisters, those who put their faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit starts working in us, we love because Jesus first loved us. 
we love, we have love push out the vengeance and the hatred and the bitterness as a work of grace from a God who came to destroy those things and to put in its place his eternal love. We love because he first loved us. Second, Ephesians 2.14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Think of this world. Think of your life. Think of Vancouver. Is there hostility here between one person and the next? Is there an impulse for vengeance and judgment on the streets of Vancouver, in the homes in Vancouver? There is. And Jesus says he came to put that to death, to destroy the hostility between one person and the next, and to make them unified perfectly in himself, to join them together with himself and bring them into relationship with God. He came to bring peace. He came to bring love. And here's that. Here's the, here's the good news. The miraculous, powerful, world-changing good news about Jesus is that he is a God who is able to pour out his own life and love into vengeful human beings like us. He's able to do it, and he wills to do it. Look at Romans 5, verse 5, which says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the miracle of the gospel. That's the miracle that Jesus came to accomplish, to pour his love into our hearts and to displace the murderous evil and vengeance and vindictiveness. As we wrap this up, think about this. Jesus said 2,020 years ago, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Just return to that point. Let me be clear. You can't do that. You can't do that. On your own, you are not able to do that. You can't forgive and love and show compassion when it costs you deeply. I mean, oh, sure, you you can be kind and nice to your friends and and forgive some people that are kind of close to you. And work through relationships at that level. But you can't, you can't love when sinned against. You can't respond in mercy when oppressed. Unless God does something in you. You can't root out the hatred and the bitterness and the revenge that's deep inside of you. For that, you need a miracle. For that, you need Jesus to work on you. The Savior who's come to fulfill the law. It's why he came. He came to do this, to make you love as he loves that's why he came. So how's that landing on you this morning? I know a lot of you in this room have been really deeply and profoundly hurt by human beings in your lives. Deeply and profoundly hurt. I know a lot of you nurture and cherish like me, because you're, you're human like I am, nurture and cherish this, this impulse for vindictiveness and judgment for vengeance. You hold on to it. I know for a lot of you, it's not abstract either. It's very specific. You know the people. You can see their faces in your mind and you know what you wish would happen. You can't love on your own. You know what we need? We need this gospel of Jesus, this good news to penetrate our hearts. We need to be filled with the power of his Holy Spirit to change us. We need to see Jesus, as we talked about, 
to see him as the merciful and loving God who came and did not resist the evil one, but died in his love for us. We need to love, to see him, to delight in him, to have him so captivate our imaginations and our souls and our hearts that it works its way down deep into us by the power of our spirit and we start to live like he lives. We need that to happen. But the good news is that Jesus is real. He's not an imagination, uh, a figment of your imagination, something we just tell ourselves on Sunday mornings just to kind of work ourselves up into a frenzy. He's real. He's real. His Holy Spirit is real and it's powerful and he can work this in you. He can change you. And he says to you, all who come to me, all who come to Jesus, wherever you're at in this room, when we come before him and we say, look, Jesus, you got it. This is me. I'm a wreck. In my sin, I am broken like you would not believe. Jesus, this is me. I admit that before you. And I'm laying my life down before you. Would you forgive me? And when you start to deal with this in me, Jesus promises he will. It's a hope of the gospel. He can work it in us. He can change us. He can do it in us. So here's my invitation. Man, won't you seek him together with us as a church? Once you press in, he's just filled this place with grace and mercy. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters that are on the same journey, learning to walk and to live by the power of the Spirit, to be changed by Jesus. Would you join us in it? If you're wondering, what can I do? How can this be different? Will you embark on a journey with a group of people to practice loving one another, to pray together, to seek the Lord in private, in our own prayer, to say, God, please change me. To seek him in his word privately, but also publicly and together. Would you join us? Would you consider joining a community group so that God and his grace would have more area around your life to work in and through you to change you, to cause Jesus to be formed in you? Would you join us in that? Would you seek his face? Ask Jesus for a miracle. He loves to answer. To each of us, he says, I will be found by you when you seek me with all of your hearts. That's the promise. Would you pray with me?